0: My name is Roberto Gonzalez. I pastor the Spanish church here at Crayao Christian Fellowship, Iglesia Crayao Christian Fellowship Espanol. We're the same church, we're just in Spanish. That's it. God bless you. And the theme that I have today to share with you is called Right Now Counts Forever. Let me explain that theme. Now counts forever everything you do in life counts forever if everything you do in life just counts for now then your vision is really really small because now it's already gone see that it's already gone it already passed it's like you know when you look at a river it's not the same river it already went by so in the theme that right now counts forever it is, it is my intention, uh, to the help of the Holy Spirit, to make you think that everything you do in life, you see it through the lens of the eternal, of heaven, of the way God thinks about everything we do in life. See, right now, counts comes forever. It us, helps us address various issues in the spirit of the age, what Christians are facing today, They face throughout the world, and they have faced throughout history. Right now, counts forever, makes us address various things, you know, not just theological matters of the church, but anything. Anything really goes through this lens. See, because everything you do matters to God. Your life matters. Your life has significance. And it matters forever. Not just for now. So everything we do, everything we experience, every pain, every tear we shed is significant to God. And it matters forever. So right now, comes forever will help us address all these things, every aspect of life. See, as Christians, we are called to be concerned about the things that are, have eternal value. To think of everything that we do from the lens and the perspective of God. And let me share, share a few scriptures that talk about this theme. See, when John the Baptist came preaching in the written sermon that we have, he came talking about this theme of heaven. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And there you see that theme of the kingdom of heaven. See, people of Israel were having many problems during Roman occupation. But see, God is not concerned with many of the problems we are concerned with. As he came preaching, he reminded us that we don't belong to a kingdom of this world. But he came preaching a kingdom of heaven. And he's also saying the kingdom of heaven is near. He's also saying the kingdom of God is among you because Jesus was here. And he was calling people to repent and saying, see, the king has arrived, and you're dirty. You have to cleanse yourself because this king is here, and you might miss him. See, in Matthew chapter 5, we also have Jesus reminding us of this theme. In chapter 5, verse 1, where he has the famous Sermon of the Mount. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There again. That's the first things he, one of the first things he said on his famous sermon, the kingdom of heaven. When you recognize that you need the Lord in your life, and you recognize that your resources cannot get you to heaven, he says, when you recognize you are a blessed person because you recognize that you need me in your life, and yours is the kingdom, not of this earth, but the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus starts with that theme, and he also ends the Sermon of the Mount with, the, with that same thing, because you see the same thing in verse 10 of the same chapter blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness because of doing the right thing for theirs is the kingdom of heaven there again you see it verse 11 blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me of jesus rejoice and be glad and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets, you were, you were, be, they were before you. So you see this theme in the scriptures, the theme of heaven. Let's pray that God will guide us and make us understand his word. Father, we want to thank you for this opportunity you give us to hear the blessed word of God, Lord. Your bread, Lord. Help us to understand, be clear, be receptive, and to help us, Lord, understand your word. May I be, go to the side, Lord, and you may minister our church to their Lord. In the name of Christ, we pray, and everybody says, amen. amen. So, and right now it counts forever. We are encouraged as, as children of God to see everything through the lens of heaven, through the eternal. If I were to ask you, where does God live? Why would you answer? You know, many, many answers could come like he lives in my heart. Uh, he lives in the in his people, in among, among his people. All those answers might be right, but the Bible says where God lives. The Bible says that he indwells in the eternal. Eternity is his residence. So we are called to see everything we do through that lens, through the lens of heaven, through the lens of the eternal, not just the now not be like the pepsi generation just do it now not like nike just do it now don't worry about the consequences no there's consequences for what we do and they have and they have the consequences sometimes many times have eternal value you know so we are called to uh to see everything from the perspective of god and that everything we do counts forever so everything in life, like I said, not just theological, not just church life, but your work life, your marriage life, the work, you know, the, when you interact with people, everything has to be filtered through the filter of heaven. Let's, let's for a minute uh, explore the American dream through the lens of heaven. You know, the American dream, you know, this this country it, it is the nation of immigrants. This is the capital of immigrants, not just of this continent, but of the world. Everybody wants to come here. See, I'm 41. I forget my age. 45. I'm 45. I'm 45. I can't even. I can't believe what 60 is gonna look like with me. You know. So see, the, the, this nation. Even when when I was nine years old in Central America. You would hear people going to America. And it, I was that small when we knew that going to America was connected with your prosper. You had not even touched the country yet or the soil, and you already knew that you were going to have a prosperous life. Everybody looked towards going towards America. You know, in my country, obviously my country was dealing with war, and a lot of countries in Latin America had abuse, corruption. Everybody looked towards going The north, you know, so everybody knew that when you went to America and that was your family member, even you were gonna benefit from that. That's that as a young boy, I knew that all my family immigrated here to the US. Almost 95% of my family is here now. There's five percent over there. We just go to visit, you know, the old houses that we grew up in, stuff like that. But almost everybody is here. You know, and the generation of my parents—they're people they are the hardest working generation. I don't know if we're ever going to see that nation, that generation again. I really don't know because, see, they just came. See, they, those are the people that grew up without technology. They had to make it happen. They had to work without all these tools that we have nowadays. And th- that was the generation of my parents. You know, that my, my my uncle, my aunts, my father—they just came to work. They didn't come to commit crimes, to get into problems. They just came to uh, mind their own business, save money, don't get into debt. They bought their houses with no education. Just, but to this day, my aunt, she picks up pennies. It's like what, That's one more penny I didn't have, son. And, you know, this is just the, the thinking behind it. Unfortunately, I have to say that my generation doesn't think the same. It's different. Because we have grew up with different values. We are just more consumers. We're not producers like the old, like the old generation. So, you know, we, I grew up with that, seeing that coming to America was the land of prosperity. You had not even touched the ground. Just look at the thinking. of You had not even touched the ground, and you already were happy because you were going to have a prosperous future. That's the American dream. And the, Ameri- the reason why the American Dream became the American Dream is because in the-, in the United States, our founding fathers put some rights there that were protected, that were protected, and those things were the what what uh what protected us from the tyranny of the majority, or for you to come here and build something for yourselves, and those protect. Those protections came on a phrase by by our founding fathers in the Declaration of Independence. If you remember, they're called life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right? Rights endowed by God that we all created equal in the sight of God. And you all deserve to have those rights. And our founding fathers protected that because they knew that governments can take advantage of people. But let's examine the American dream from the lens of heaven because we know that every system is not perfect when it comes from men. The only system that is perfect is the system that Christ brings to us. So in examining the American dream, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, rights endowed by a holy God, let's examine the first one. The right of life. Indeed. It is a right given by God to protect you. And that's what government is supposed to do, protect your life. To know that you can go about your country and you know that nobody can take your life away. You can go and live life and your sons can live life and your life is protected. The liberty of life. It is a right given by, by God. But not to the unborn infant. See, the, the abortion battle has cast a great darkness in the United States where life is not seen from an eternal perspective, but is seen as an abstract. Life is protected by God, but will protect your life, not the unborn life. And that is why, and right now counts forever, we are called to see everything from the lens. Of heaven why because it matters to God and truth matters so we're not to see things in an abstract way but in the context of sanctity where life is holy where we as bearers of the image of God we get our dignity from God see and the devil knows this the life is given by God and we have to see that through that lens the right of life is rooted in, the, in a holy God. It is sacred. The character rests not on human biology, but in the one who created us and gave us life. So we bear the image of almighty God. So life is not a product only of a dream. Because if it's just the, the product of a dream where you just protect my life to work and build riches, then that life and that dream can become a nightmare when it's not guarded by a holy God. See, and the story that, that, uh, that, that consumes me with passion about this is the story of two women. Two women that were assigned by God to protect all the male infants born to the Hebrews that were slaves during the Egypt captivity. See, when, uh, when, uh, when when Jacob came to Egypt, he came as a family of 70. And as you know, they were there in bandage for 400 years. After 400 years, when you have a family that doesn't believe in uh, uh, methods of contraception, or you just have kids, you can grow to a million in 400 years when you're very healthy. So we know that that's what happened. But... The new Pharaoh saw this as a threat and he he summoned two women who were the midwives of the Hebrew woman and he met with these two women which we have their names as and pua and he gave them an order saying every time a male uh, a male is born from the people of Israel your job is to kill him if it's a uh, woman, you shall let her live. And this was the plan of Pharaoh to, you know, little by little, start exterminating the people of Israel. So they got this order. These two women got this order from the most powerful man on earth at that moment. Imagine what these women went through. These two women are described in the Bible. Now let's let's uh let's comment on this a little bit because the Bible talks about two women, but. You know, the Bible, you know, I have a rule that where the Bible doesn't shout, we, uh, we stay silent. You know, we try not to comment, but I can't resist the temptation to comment on this one. Because we know that there can, could not be two midwives when you had a, uh, a population of 100,000, 200,000, half a million people. It's obvious that these women were probably the directors of the union. Right? Of the syndicate, these were the, 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 the board directors. There was probably 100, 300 midwives there. But these women were the leaders. And that's why they were summoned. And I could just imagine these women going to their union hall and saying, "You know, we have a new rule from the government saying that every time a male boy is born in our family, in our culture. From our friends and family, we have to kill them. It came from the supreme leader. And and I can just imagine this meeting that they were having. And those Hebrew women saying, but you know what? We're not going to do that. We're going to save all those babies. Every single one. And obviously... Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, found out about this. And he summoned, again, these two women saying, why did you do this? Why did you not kill all those boys? And as you know the story, they told Pharaoh saying, well, you know what, uh, King? uh, Hebrew women are very different than Egyptian women. See, Hebrew women work all day building all your pyramids. Building all your buildings. They're very strong. They're very physical. So when they're going to have that baby, boom, they have it and that's it. When we get there, the baby's already there. Very different woman than Egyptian woman. Hard-working woman. And we see some women that are very physical and even they could be at nine months and they're still working, you know. So that that is possible. But there's something here that we we have to address. And you might say... Yeah, Pastor, but those women lie. And we are commanded not to lie. And that's true. I'm glad you're thinking. We are commanded to always say the truth because the truth matters. And that's what we're talking about that. Looking everything to the eternal value of heaven matters, right? But you see, we have to explain something about truth. That's why it's, it's important that we understand all these concepts. True has to be given to those. Who we own it to. We don't own the truth to everybody. So that was a lie that was sanctioned by a holy God. Because the reason why they lie is because they were protecting those children. See, as a mom, you will probably understand this. As a mother, you will understand this. When the enemy pass, you know, crosses your borders and they come knocking in your door. And you as mom answer the door. And the one in front of your house is the enemy of your son. And he asks, where's your son? And you know that he's going to harm your son. You're not going to say, yeah, he's in the room to the left, hiding under the bed. (laughs) Right? You're not going to say that. See, you're not entitled to share the secret information. See, the truth is given to those who we own it to, who deserve the truth. So they obviously lie. Because they were protecting the sanctity of life. They were protecting all those children. And you know what God said? Since they protected, and they took a very brave position, God blessed them. He said God blessed them with their own families. Not only with their own families, but with houses. You know what's more interesting? That God mentions their names in the Bible. Sifra and Pua. You know that to this day we don't know the name of the pharaoh? Do you have an idea why God didn't mention his name? Do you think maybe that reveals the character of God, how he felt it about that Pharaoh? We can know through, you know, through history and through archaeology who he was. But God didn't even take the dignity to mention his name. But he did mention those two women, Sifra and Pua. One day you'll get to meet those women in heaven. Give God praise. And you gotta think that those women were probably afraid. But see, to be brave, you need the element of fear. Fear, you know, to, to be brave, the, it doesn't mean that you don't have fear. It just means you move forward. There's many times I was scared. When I started a church, I was scared, believe me. I was scared, you know, the devil was telling me, like, you know what, you're gonna start, but there could be nobody, man. Nobody to preach to. See, those, those are fears that pastors go through. You know, you know, you're gonna start a church, but you know, it's not gonna grow. Those fears. I just kept moving forward. I just kept moving forward. Give God praise. So life, life is determined by a holy God, and is protected by a holy God. And what matters is true. Why does it matter? Because it matters to God. That's why. And see, if it mattered 3,000 years ago, it matters now. And these are truths that we have to understand that in the culture that we live on, have come because of what we call in the United in the America the sexual revolution. Do you guys remember the Elvis phenomenon? Right of the 50s where he started moving very provocative, you know, and that was that was big for back then. I mean, women were fainting, you know, because he was dancing and even when they put the cameras, they wouldn't go under under the waist to not show his movement. Woo, we have come a long way. But see, that that's where we were at one point. So our values have trickled down, have this, not ascended, but have descended. And we have to understand that God doesn't change. It's still the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. It's still the same. So life is determined by a holy God, not by, not by a, a government right, but by God. Liberty. When man is a slave and you are you are liberated from that, from that, from that uh, oppression or slavery. See, this becomes a celebration of a jubilation. But when freedom or liberty is not, is confused with autonomy or saying, I can make my own decisions based on what I think, you can become the oppressor. When you demand your rights, you can oppress somebody else. See, so liberty has to be remembered that we have liberty in God, but we also need law. And not just law, but we need a just law that gives us order in our liberty, that restrains. So we don't do, so evil does not abound in our streets. The individual who lives without restraints becomes himself the one who can tyrannize someone else around him. With, this, with the right of liberty comes the obligation of law, but not just any law, but the just laws that we see in the Bible. A just law does not destroy liberty, but it is a prerequisite. It's, it's a necessity for liberty. Liberty cannot exist without law. And without law, liberty is anarchy. Without liberty, law is tyranny. I'll, sh- I'll, I'll share with you an example of law. North Korea, that place has no liberty. That place has law. There, the president of the country is the savior of the country, and you are commanded to worship the president of the country. And if you don't, it's death to all your family. See, that country is only by law. You don't have a choice. As a matter of fact, if you want to travel to that country, one of the first things you have to sign, you cannot bring a Bible in here. They're so afraid of a book that can change people's life. So, see, it's that place is an example of only law. So liberty, that liberty that God gives us is also ruled by the laws that God gave us. See, in the book of Deuteronomy, it's called Second Law because he, the, the first generation had died. And God here, he, he busted out with his, with his chalkboard and started taking, teaching the second generation. What did he teach them? His law, that's what he teaches him through the prophet Moses. Remember, Moses had a few months to live, and that was the book of term teaching the second generation of the, of the sons and daughters of the moms and dads of the people of Israel, teaching the law of God. That's what was, that's, that was the point of the book of the Theronomy. So liberty comes with also John's law. It is a prerequisite. The pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of happiness, if anything will destroy the American dream, is the confusion that happiness happiness can be confused with pleasure. See, sin can give you pleasure. And we cannot confuse that. If God is God, there cannot be any happiness in disobedience. The law of God is a sign for happiness. The entire creation was designed for happiness. The obedient person is blessed. Blessed is the ultimate form of happiness. When you are blessed by a holy God. There is no happiness in sin. There's pleasure. There's a difference. You can, have, you can find pleasure in sin. It, that's a reality. But not happiness. Not happiness. But there is pleasure. If there was no pleasure in sin... See, See, uh, it would hardly be a temptation. It would hardly be a temptation. See, it, it brings loss, it brings pleasure, it enslaves us. Once again, it turns a dream into a nightmare. So we have to remember all those things. The loss of the pleasure is not a right that we have, the pursuit of happiness, it is. And happiness can only be fine when God is blessing it. So life, liberty, and happiness. Those things cannot exist without heaven perspective. Life cannot exist without the sanctity of a holy God. Liberty cannot exist without the law of God. And happiness cannot exist without obedience to a holy God. When you divorce them, you divorce them from the will of God. And you divorce them forever. God in the workplace. See, what did Jesus have to say about the workplace? We are, in, in, uh, in Renown Counts Forever, like I said, we are, the, the, the effort of this is to remind us how we see everything through the lens of heaven, through the eternal God. See, so here we come up with another example. Why was communism so successful in what they did? You know the reason why they were so successful was because their goals were clear. You know the strategy was very simple: recruit the working men, recruit the working men, reach the worker with a promise of a new and better life, show the worker how he has been a victim of tyranny of the owner. Does that sound familiar? See, Karl Marx was no dummy. He knew that men and women are very tied to their work. Work gives you value, gives you dignity. You you accomplish. You're very connected with your work. So he recruited the man based on his values. Clear, is very fundamental to human existence. What we do is part of us. He understood that. Man's life is very closely bonded to his work. Karl Karl Marx called a man the man, the maker, the fabricator. We get you know uh, we get joy when we when we build things, when we fabric, when we accomplish things. And this is also the, the work of God. You know, I mean, I mean, think about it. In creation, we see God working for six days. So he, he, he paints the example. So, work, a means of production, taking ownership is vital for man and woman, an inspiration of dignity. When, when a man's job or a woman's job is an exercise of frustration, when things don't go all your way, when you're not valued at work, when there's this disconnect between management and you as the worker, what happens to the worker? The worker gives a very small effort towards work. The manager gets frustrated because, you know, you're not giving it all you got. And this becomes a perfect reality for somebody that comes, a leader that comes saying, man, you're not valued, man. And that was the whole communist model: You're not valued. We're going to fight for you. You know, we're going to get rid of those things. We're going to make everybody equal. And their goals were clear. And they recruited the working men. But as we know, every system that comes from men is not perfect. So those groups of people become very vulnerable to leaders that have their own agenda and that only want to take advantage. So what does the worker do with that frustration and anger? He brings it home. He takes it on his wife. He takes it on his kids. His kids do not want to be home. They run to drugs. The manager does the same thing. They're not giving me all I got. You know, the, the, the orders start coming down on me. And he takes it on his wife. He takes it on his kids. The kids run to drugs. The kids don't want to be home. And it's just a cascade of problems which God wants to redeem. See, God is the redeemer of all these areas. Christians have to be very careful to stay clear of that arena unless Christians take the workplace seriously and everything they'll do in life. See, I'm mean, like I, I my occupation is, is an electrician. My 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 father worked in the construction field his whole life. And when you work there, you see what the plumber does, what the carpenter does, what the pipe fitter does, what the sheet rocker does. Everybody is there, you know? And my father, he said, "You know what, God? Apply to being an electrician. Those guys make good money." So me, without knowing anything, I just went and apply in 2000, and I got in. I st- uh, went to school for five years, you know. So I became, I became, you know, an electrician. Like I said, I'm not giving myself, you know, promotion. I don't want any jobs. You know, I, do, I don't do side jobs. My second job is here at the church. I'm very busy. So, you know, I just say it as a way that. You know, this is where my, my dad encouraged me to go. So my point is this when I show up at 7 a.m., I'm not showing up to a secular job. My job is holy. The soon, the, the soon, as soon as I show up there at 7 a.m., that becomes my holy place. I have to shine the light of Christ at work. Give God a great hand. See, at work, there is no time for lazy. There is no you are, you shine the best at work. Your work becomes your your mission place where people see you, they see your attitude, they see what time you show up. I'm impressed how people cannot make it on time. Everything is their fault, but not their fault. It's the traffic. It was the deer that crossed in 280. And I have hit deer in 280. Believe me. It is true, it happens. You know, so, but it's never your fault. You know, we excuse ourselves. See, and the workplace, while it might be a secular realm, but as soon as you're there, it's holy. You are there representing God. It's not just church that you need to have, you know, a, a job or a position or a role. Everywhere you go, you're serving the Lord. Everywhere you go, and people will notice that. The best example I can give you is the life of Joseph. Joseph was the epitome of perfection when it comes to a worker, to somebody that administrated his gifts of administration in a way that pleased the Lord. He was the example of example. So see, Christ has come to reconcile all things to himself. Where where you are alienated, Christ is needed desperately. And at work there's a lot of people that are alienated they don't feel value they don't feel you know uh, uh, w- w- you know word from their employees is needed there is needed there yeah g- g- give him, give the Lord a hand <laughs> see I I work with a lot of people that are called the baby do- baby boomers right they're about to retire there's a, one of my friends he has in his heart hat. 36, 37, 37 weeks till I retire. He has it. It's it's very common that I find people, that I retire in a month. Because they've been doing it for 35 years, 40 years. I'm like, wow, you know, people doing it this long. And when you encounter somebody like that, it's all, seeing, doing their work, my my, my occupation is electrical. It's almost like seeing a painter with his brush. It's amazing how you, in a few minutes, you can learn so much from somebody. Just by watching how they move, how they how they grab things, how they bend a wire, how they grab it. It's it's interesting. It's like every step counts for them. But there's a lot of people that are don't feel value, their work. And there, Christ is desperately needed to redeem the situation. To redeem. You know what I do with those guys that are very older? I respect gray hair. It tells me that he's been around the block. Many more times than me. Unfortunately, our young generation does not see that value. It's very unfortunate. When I see somebody like that man, I stick to him like gum. And I learn from that person. I want to take all he has before he calls it quit. Because you will learn a lot from experience. We don't just learn from teachers of the Bible. We can learn from anybody. And we are called to honor any teacher. In any role. So... God has come to reconcile all of these areas, and we have to look at it from the perspective of heaven. Christian principles can change the workplace. Your work is not secular. It's holy to God. It is holy to him. Look for ways you can apply Christ in your job, in your work, not with a bumper sticker or a sign in your desk, but with your life. Yeah, give, give, give God a hand of praise. See? And, and 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 if you think you have it bad, just look at the life of Joseph. Joseph lived in a foreign country, foreign land, foreign language. He was away from his family. His family didn't even want him, his brothers and sisters. And he got to work in the worst of conditions, no employment, no benefits, no health care, no nothing. You work for, for your food and your clothes and that's it. And he was the best at what he did. Everything he touched prospered. And how and what was the treatment he got? He got sent to jail. He got sold by his brothers. They accused them of lying. You know, but every time that things bad would happen to Joseph in the workplace, what did the Bible say after those things bad that would happen to him? But God was with Joseph. Even when he landed in jail, he ended up running in the jail. That's how much trust this guy inspired. You know, imagine that warden of jail giving you the keys. And after 12 years of going through this journey, he got to interpret the dream of Pharaoh. 12 years. If you want to look at a life of success, look at the life of Joseph. But it took him 12 years. One day, he was a nobody. The next day, he was the prime minister of Egypt. But God worked through him. And God is teaching us something there. There is no better example than Joseph where he worked, uh, he worked not a not church. He worked in a secular environment. You got to remember that. he worked. In, the church was not formed yet. He worked in a secular environment. So this goes to prove that we can do it. We know the law of God has been written in our hearts. But if Joseph would be now, he would be the model member of his church. And we have to remember that everything we do counts forever. So I will encourage you with these words that everything you do, you see it, everything I do is holy. Everything I touch is holy. My relationship is holy. My relationship with my wife, with my kids, with my employer is holy. Even when I'm on the freeway, I drive in a holy manner because everything that I do now counts and it counts forever. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this opportunity you give us. To listen to your words. To know, Lord, that everything we do is not just for now, Lord, but it comes for eternity. To know, the Lord, that every idol, word, everything we do, everything we say, will be, will be, will be bringing into account, Lord. Lord, thank you for this opportunity you give us to be the light of the world. To show truth. To show the hope that it is in Jesus Christ, our Savior. In the name of Christ, we pray. And everybody said, amen. God bless you, Cry Christian Fellowship. Thank you for coming.